Hello and welcome to the Humble Pilot Podcast. This is episode three and I am Jean-Paul. Pleasure to have you here. And in episode three today, we're going to be going over a few things that I found really interesting this week in terms of news, what I've been up to and uh, some questions from Instagram from you guys that I'll be happy to answer. And uh, you'll be seeing those answers a bit later on. Um, but for now, let's get on with the podcast. Um, first things first, I'd like to really thank all you guys uh, for listening. Uh, also, Sincerely, like to thank uh, the people who have left the five star reviews on iTunes as well. It really means a lot to me, and uh, it really does help the podcast get out to more people as well. So, thank you very much for that. So, what can we expect in this episode? What have I been up to since the last episode? Um, so, it's been quite an interesting uh, last couple of weeks since the last podcast. Weather hasn't been as amazing as it had been when I recorded the last one. Been a little bit wet, a little bit rainy, uh, but there has been some nice sunny spells as well. So we've been uh, managing to get out into the garden with the children and really uh, enjoy ourselves. Also, it was uh, my son's fifth birthday, uh, two f- not last Friday, the Friday before. And we had a really nice time. Of course, we were hoping to do like a big party for him, etc. But it didn't really work out because of the whole coronavirus issue. So we had a really nice time inside the house. We just really enjoyed it. We played games. Uh, He got lots of Lego, which we thought would be ideal for this kind of situation that we're in, because it gives us all something to do. Um, And to be honest as well, I love building Lego. So uh, it was a (laughs) win-win. One of the things that he really wanted was this, this big lego hulkbuster which uh, his grandmother got for him and we built it on the day and he absolutely has not stopped playing with it every day since he absolutely loves it and uh, i play with him as well with it and uh, and my other half does as well and it's just it's just a great lego is just a fantastic uh, thing to have especially in this kind of situation like i mentioned and another thing that's happened this last couple of weeks is uh, we managed to get our dog back actually it was on my son's birthday so we kind of treated it as a birthday present as well um we got our dog she's a cavapoo um her name is Nala, and she's a honey-coloured cavapoo, the cutest little thing. And we got her eight years ago. When me and my other half moved in together, we rented initially, and the the, the landlord wouldn't allow us to have a dog in the house. So we had to um, find a solution. Luckily, my mum was there, and she was uh, she'd retired from from nursing, and uh, she said that she'd happy be well be happy to look after the dog. So. We handed it to her and the dog had a lovely life. But then my mum said that she had to move abroad. So she's gone abroad and uh, it means we've managed to get the dog back now. Now we have our own house as well. Um, So it's been really, really nice to have our little dog back, especially when we got it on my son's birthday as well. So, yeah, we've been walking her. We've been really enjoying the uh, the sunshine and the rain as well, because you can't just walk a dog in the sunshine. It always has to be walked. Um, So that was lovely. We have also managed to do a massive clear out of the garden. The, the side of the garden was, was completely full up with bushes and shrubs and weeds and all sorts. Uh, we also had a shed that I, well, I say I, me and my other half didn't want to be there. It was old, it was tattered, and it also had a massive hole in the ceiling. So we knocked all that down. I got rid of all the bushes on the side of the gar- down the side of the garden and just about to take it to the um, recycling centre and then to figure out that the recycling centre's not actually open. Um, so yeah, the garden's now got a corner completely designated for all the wood and 
bushes and whatnot that was that was all chopped down and dug up and uh, there's another section of the garden that has all the wood from the um, shed as well so as soon as the uh, recycling center is open again um, I'm going to be straight down there and getting rid of all this stuff because it's, it's, it's really really a bit of an eyesore at the moment um, but yeah apart from that it's been it's been a great two weeks uh, as I mentioned weather's not been great but we've been um, making the most of it with with building Legos and and doing all sorts of good stuff walking the dogs having a great time with the family as well as usual and making the most of the lockdown um, so with that being said we're going to move on now swiftly to cloud news British Airways announce a huge culling of pilot and cabin crew jobs in the UK. Airlines start to announce the recommencement of some of their flights. And a Russian airline has started delivering meals to grounded travellers who are in need of some in-flight nostalgia. Stay tuned. So our first story is about uh, British Airways and its CEO, Alex Cruz. Uh, how he's announced a, pl- well, a plan to make up to 12,000 pilots and cabin crew redundant, uh, even with the government uh, job retention scheme. Um, it's been stated by them that it's due to the current coronavirus pandemic. And of course, as you all know, it's, it's affecting the entire world. It's, the economy is, economy is being absolutely devastated, uh, especially uh, the aviation world as well. Um, and it comes amid the light that BA owner, IAG, International Airline Group, have managed to secure over a billion euros from several sources to save its other airlines, which are Aer Lingus, Iberia, Level, Vueling, or Vueling, I'm not too sure how that's pronounced, and uh, IAG Cargo as well. And it also comes amidst the fact that CEO Willie Walsh has refused, CEO of IAG, sorry, Willie Walsh, has refused to stop the uh, 1 billion euro purchase of Air Europa. Um, Now, as you all know, back in April last month, uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak made a statement to UK businesses, um, and it basically went along the lines of, look after your staff and we will look after you. That's that's what he said, and this is when he announced the job retention scheme and how everybody who would be, if you were to be furloughed, you'd get 80% of your salary uh, by the government up to a maximum of £2,500. So, so this was done basically to make sure that companies were able to keep their employees instead of make them redundant. And why? What, what, what's happened with BA? Uh, why, are they, why are they not going down the route of the job retention scheme as the other companies are doing and going, instead going down the route of redundancies when other airlines who are less profitable than, than IAG and BA uh, are not? Now, there was a petition started by Stephen Manzanero on uh, Change.org and in the description for this petition, uh, Stephen goes on to, to mention that BA mass sackings is immoral and possibly illegal and that it's now time to act. As of the time of this recording, the petition has reached well over 100,000 signatures and they're trying to get to, to get past the 150,000 mark as well. And um, in the petition description, it states that BA with the consent of its parent company IAG, has actively targeted the UK and its workforce, claiming it will be making a loss in the region of £550 million and that these cuts are necessary. Of course, this seems to go against the statement from IAG on the 30th of March, where they said, in quote, 
International Airlines Group IAG announces that British Airways has extended its US dollar secured revolving credit facility for one year from the 23rd of June 2020 to the 23rd of June 2021. The amount available under the extended facility is $1.38 billion, which is approximately 1 billion euros. Including the extended facility and some smaller additional facilities recently arranged, IAG has a total undrawn general and committed aircraft financing facilities equivalent to 2.1 billion euros currently, compared to 1.9 billion at the end of 2019. And IAG has not drawn down on any of its facilities. So this basically means that BA seemed to have enough money to call on to help it through the pandemic, but instead they've gone down the route of using the taxpayers' money to fund it instead. Now, we'll see what happens over the next coming weeks and what happens with this petition and if it causes the UK government to step in somehow. But for now, my thoughts and prayers go out to all the pilots and cabin crew uh, in BA, also within the whole aviation industry, as well as everybody out there who's uh, really suffering and struggling due to this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Now, in other headlines this week, uh, some airlines have started to announce the recommencement of flights. Well, one in particular who has started uh, its flying again since this Friday just gone, and that's Wizz Air. Um, in the last few days, they've mentioned that they are starting to do their fl or some flights from London Luton Airport to 15 destinations in Hungary, Slovakia, the Canaries, Israel, Serbia, Portugal and Bulgaria. And uh, but this being said, there are still travel restrictions that are being taken into consideration as well. Um, as a prerequisite to the recommencement of the flying for Wizz Air, uh, they've, start, they've stated that all the customers and crew members must wear PPEs in the form of face masks, uh, as well as customers keeping their distance as much as possible while boarding. And they've also rostered an enhanced cleaning regime, which the airlines say has to strictly be adhered to, especially uh, if they're going to start doing flying this early on. In a statement, London Luton Airport said, Quotes, the safety of our passengers and staff is our top priority and we continue to rigorously implement all government guidance. This includes deep cleaning, the installation of sanitizer across the airport and floor markings and signage to remind customers to maintain a safe distance. The decision to operate individual routes is a matter for each airline, uh, as well as adhering to travel restrictions in the country of travel, passengers also need to follow those imposed by the UK. With all this happening right now, Wizz Air have also stated that they expect to ramp up to about 70% of their flights by July and August, while other airlines such as Ryanair have said that they only expect to operate about 50% of their flights in July and August. Um, in all honesty, for me, I kind of think these figures are all just guesses. There's, there's absolutely no way of knowing what's going to happen. And especially in the next few months, uh, will coronavirus be gone by July? I don't know. The graphs that I'm seeing seem to be suggesting that by the end of by the middle to the end of June, there will be a 99% eradication or end of uh, coronavirus across the world. So July and August seem to be a good kind of ballpark figure for when airlines start to to ramp up again properly. But for Wizz Air to say 70% of their flights will be operated in July and August. I kind of see that as quite a leap of faith, but hey, they might know something that we don't. Um, at the end of the day, it's a case of 
is there going to be a tidal wave of demand coming back after the coronavirus pandemic is over or is it just going to be a bit of a trickle that's going to come in slowly like nobody knows but in my opinion i don't think it's going to be a massive surge of people going on holiday one because it's just going to be over and there's still going to be uh, restrictions in place even when the lockdown eases up and two it's going to be summer going on to winter so i think most airlines have kind of written this summer off and are just looking from winter onwards to try and uh, recoup as much money as possible and at the end of the day it really is a complex matter with different countries in europe alone having different time scales due to different reasons so really all we can do is sit down and wait patiently for uh, when real concrete news comes from real concrete data and finally in cloud news today, a Russian airline has been delivering meals to grounded travellers who are in need of some in-flight nostalgia. <laughs> now, this kind of made me made me smile um, when I read the article, so I thought I had to put it in here just uh, to get something something like that. not to do really with coronavirus and something that's a bit more upbeat. So. Ural Airlines, which is based in Russia, have started delivering in-flight meals to customers who miss the, the thrill and the wish of aviation due to the coronavirus pandemic that's going on. Um, the airline has found a nice little niche where its model is quite simple. It just literally delivers its in-flight meals to customers in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Yekaterinburg, and, and it's basically a taste of travel without leaving your home, as they say. So Ural offers the same range of food as it does to its flying customers, such as chicken, meat, fish, and vegetarian options. And it also provides orange or apple or tomato juice. Um, and when I saw tomato juice, I just had to, it, it came into my head that, I don't know about you guys, but I literally associate tomato juice with aviation. I, I never drink it in my normal day-to-day -day life. I've never bought it in my normal day-to-day -day life. But get me on a plane, and for some reason, I have no idea why, I always order tomato juice. And I... I think it's something to do with back when I was younger and I went to my first few flights with my family. My father always used to order tomato juice, so I just did the same and it became something that became ingrained in my head. But anyway, back to cloud news. So how much does it all cost for these uh, meals to be delivered to, to the passengers? So for a business class meal, you can expect to pay the equivalent of £16.65, that's converted from rubles, and that's for a chicken meal. And for an economy class, it's a cost of about £7.33, also once converted from rubles. So I'll leave the decision open to you guys as to whether you think it's good value and whether you think it's worth it. But hey, I thought it was something that, would, that was quite upbeat and a little something to, to bring a smile to everybody's faces. So now we're moving on to InstaQs, which is a section of the podcast where I take questions from yourselves via Instagram and uh, answer them here on the podcast. And I really, really do enjoy answering these questions because uh, I, I answer them on Instagram as well. And then I bring them in here and answer them for you guys in the podcast. And I've had quite a few questions in regards to the differences between the Airbus and the Boeing and my pilot training, how I went about it, my process, how long it took, etc, etc. So I'm going to bring some of these uh, into the podcast today. Uh, so question one is basically how long did it take you to get from zero to airline? And that is, I think it was just over two years. Yeah, just over two years. So I started my pilot training back in January 2005. And I went over to Naples, Florida to do it, to do my PPL. And I did that at Naples Flight Center. 
And it was absolutely fantastic. It was lovely, really beautiful weather. I think there was one day out of the whole time I was there where it was quite stormy. But apart from that, everything was absolutely great. So after the PPL, I went to California, did some hour building over there. Uh, that lasted about two months. And then uh, I took a short break after I came back from the hour building. And I did my ATPL ground schools in Oxford. That lasted six to seven months, I believe. And once I'd finished that, I went to Stapleford Flight Center to do my commercial pilot's license, my multi-engine rating, and my commercial pilot and my uh, instrument rating as well. And then I went back to Oxford again to do my MCC, multi-crew cooperation course. Um, now that was all done and dusted by April 2007. After that, I went to my local cinema, got a job there, and I worked there for a few months. I was very lucky in that I was able to get my first job at ASA Shells, and that was flying the Twin Otters, and that happened in, if I remember correctly, it was June or July 2007. So, yeah, all in all, it took me probably about a year and a half, two, uh, two and a half years to get everything done from zero to my first airline, which... Uh, I was very lucky to have. I have friends who were actually, they finished their their training and they weren't able to get their first job until a good few years down the line. Um, so I class myself as very, very lucky to be able to have got what I got. Um, but yeah, I hope that answers the question. The second question is, uh, what's the highest crosswind you have ever landed in? And that was not that long ago, actually. So back in January, the UK had... Oh, it was about three or four storms, and they brought some really, really, really strong winds to, to Gatwick and, well, the whole of the UK, really. And I remember getting the weather for Gatwick coming in. I can't remember where we were coming in from, actually, but um, getting the weather for Gatwick and knowing that it was going to be really, really strong crosswinds, but I didn't realise at the time that it was going to be absolute aircraft limits, which is 38 knots. And that was gusting 38 knots as well, so not just a steady 38 knots, which would have been a bit easier, but when it's gusting, the aircraft just gets thrown about everywhere and controllability becomes a little bit more difficult. But we landed, and uh, we were lucky too as well because there were other aircraft that were going around diverting. We'd taken tons of fuel extra uh, just in case we had to hold for a little while, do another approach or divert to an airport that wasn't nearby. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the strongest crosswind that I've landed in was back in January, and that was a full 38 knots, gusting 38 knots as well. Uh, but that being said as well, I've landed in headwinds of gusting over 60 knots before going into Dublin, but that was back in the days when I was uh, flying the 737. But yeah, that was that was something else. That Gusting 38 knots across is not nice at all, but gusting 60-something knots is, is uh, not very good at all, um, especially considering at 65 knots, airports tend to close and don't let aircraft come in anyway. Um, so yeah, I hope that answered that question as well. So, question three is, is, are crosswind landings harder in the 737 or the A320? Now, this one I, I kind of get asked quite a lot on when I'm flying as well by the first officers. And the answer is, quite simply, they are harder to land in the A320. Um, for me, it I've, I've always kind of mentioned that... I see the 737 as driving a sporty BMW where you can feel everything that's going on around you. The steering is really precise 
and you know it's it's just a really fun car to drive whereas i see the a3 a320 as driving a nice luxurious s-class mercedes-benz and you know it's really wafty it's really comfortable but the thing is when you're flying the 737 every single tiny move that you make you can feel Whereas when you're flying the A320, it, there's, there's no direct connection between the aircraft controls and your side stick. So it, there's, there's a very slight delay and you can feel it. You know, if, if you're putting full side stick to the left, the aircraft starts to turn left a few milliseconds later. But by the time that's happened, the crosswind has decreased. The gust is gone and you don't need that much side stick input any anymore. And the aircraft starts to turn a bit more violently and you have to put the side stick control a bit more to the right and you know it, it it's it's a bit sluggish compared to flying the 737 the 737 you do something it happens immediately because all the controls are directly connected by rods and pulleys and hydraulics to the actual control surfaces of the wings and the uh, the tail and it, everything happens instantaneously and you can absolutely feel everything that's going on as well in the uh, in the flight yoke so definitely 100%. It's so much easier to land crosswind landings in the 737 compared to the A320. And uh, question four was, what was it like flying Twin Otters in the Seychelles? And how did you land that job? And okay, that was... Okay, let me, let me say how I landed the job, first of all. Because like I've mentioned before, I was very lucky to do it. Um, but my dad was friends with somebody who was uh, in the company at the time in SA Shells. So he was able to to get uh, a word in for me, which quite often in, in aviation is the case. So sometimes you just get your CV to a company and it's, you know, you, you get an interview and sometimes you get a lucky break. Sometimes it's word of mouth. So that just kind of fell into my lap, which I was very, very, very lucky to have. And... I went over to the Seychelles, and um, it was absolutely fantastic to fly the Twin Otters, but before I actually got the job and started flying for Seychelles itself, I had to do three months of uh, basic training in the army. And that was just some form of national service that you had to go through if you wanted to fly for the airline. Also, you had to be a national as well to be able to to apply and fly for, for Seychelles and the Twin Otters. Um, the army itself, that was one heck of an experience it really really was like I look back on it now and I think to myself I really am glad that I went through that experience because I'm never going to experience that again in my life it was absolutely exhausting and every day went by slower than you could possibly imagine but by the time I got to the end of it I just sat there and thought to myself I can't believe how fast the whole three months has gone when each and every day seemed to last a lifetime it's it's a complete mind boggle but um yeah it was once once i got the job there i did the type rating actually on the aircraft itself i did the exams beforehand i had to go and do a license conversion to a seychelles uh license and then once i'd done that i did my ground exams for the twin otter and then i went and did my type rating i can't remember for the life of me how many flights i had to do but um it was on the aircraft itself and it was a great experience as well the Twin Otter, I've said it before, it's an absolutely amazing aircraft to fly. Its stall capabilities, short takeoff and landing capabilities are just phenomenal. That thing could land on a penny. And there was an air, there was an air 
airport, um, which was quite close to the main island of Mahé. And it, you come in at a 45 degree angle. And the airport, the, the, the runway itself was only approximately 400 meters long, I think it was. And this two and a half used to used to stop way before the halfway point and uh, just to taxi to the end of the runway. But really, really good aircraft to fly. Also, with the Seychelles being on the ICTZ as well, close to the ICTZ, you get some really heavy storms over there. So it was uh, challenging at times, but most of the time we just steered flights from Mahé to Pralen, which uh, was about 15 minutes long. And we used to do that four or six times a day. Used to work about four days on, two days off, holidays included as well. And I went there in uh, 2007 in, I believe it was, yeah, it was 2007, late 2007. And I wasn't able to come back to the UK for about nine months, I believe it was. Because one, I had to wait until I started working for them. And two, once I started working for them, I wasn't allowed to use, to get, well, I didn't get any staff discounts for six months. So, um, yeah, I had to wait quite a while before I was actually able to come back to the UK. Now, apart from that, the reason that I left the Air Seychelles was because I had applied to a number of European airlines uh, as a first officer job because Air Seychelles was, was a great gig and I really, really enjoyed it. And I'd, I'd love to go and do it again if money wasn't an issue. But at the time, I wasn't getting paid very much at all. The equivalent was about 450 to 500 euros a month, which isn't very much if you're really needing to um, to survive over there. And the other thing was the road to the jets, the international jets. They had 767s at the time. Now they have the A330s. But it was going to take quite a long time to get there. And I didn't want to be in my 30s and still not flying jets. Uh, so I applied elsewhere over in, in Europe and uh, in, I applied in, to Ryanair and Ryanair came back to me and offered me an interview. Uh, I eventually got the job with Ryanair. So I felt for me that the best career move was to leave Air Seychelles and go and, uh, and start working in Ryanair in Europe. And yeah, so it was Great flying the Twin Otters in the Seychelles. I had a really good time. Uh, the aircraft was absolutely amazing. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just, every experience you have in life is a stepping stone. And I felt that working over there gave me a huge amount of experience. And it also gave me the ability to fly turboprops, which not many people get to do nowadays. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for that. Now, with the InstaQs over, I just want to put myself out to you guys and say that I, I really do appreciate all the questions that I'm getting from uh, Instagram. And if anybody has any questions at all that they'd like to ask me or they'd like to do a live conversation with me on Instagram as well, I'll be doing one with GLC Pilots uh, on Friday at 8.30. Um, then please do search for me. I am. I can be found on Instagram at uh, the.humble.pilot. If you just type in the humble pilot, I'm sure I'll come up anyway but my tag is the.humble.pilot. And like I mentioned, just get on there. You don't have to follow me if you don't want to, but if you want to ask me any questions, I am more than happy to answer them and also more than happy to incorporate them into the podcasts as well. Also, you can find me on my blog, which is uh, www.thehumblepilot.com, which I update 
I try to update every week, but it's usually every two weeks. And you can also contact me on thehumblepilot.com via the contact page. And there are also other um, social media links that are available in there as well that you can find me on. But ideally, I do tend to use Instagram the most. So if you search me on Instagram at The Humble Pilots, you'll definitely be able to find me and you'll definitely be able to ask me any questions. And I 100% will get back to you and answer them as well. So that's it for episode three. Thank you very much for joining me. I do hope you've enjoyed it and uh, I hope to see you in episode four. If you have enjoyed the podcast, then I really, really would appreciate it if you could go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review because it really helps me. It really helps the podcast and the algorithm loves it as well. And it helps it uh, push the podcast to more people who would find this kind of information interesting. So yeah, see you in episode four. Happy contrails.